This November, make home security your priority. Never miss a thing with Ring Alarm, video doorbells and cameras. Check out Ring's Black Friday deals and save up to 2,000 Rand on selected devices. See, hear and talk to visitors right from your phone, from anywhere. Ring's Black Friday deals are available at Take-A-Lot, Vodacom and Incredible Connection. Keep an eye on what's most valuable to you, because with Ring, you're always home. As night sets over the canal, the moonlight glistens off the water. In most places, the current is fierce. Not even a grown man can withstand it. But there is a place where the water stills and moves slower than an old man shuffling across the red sand. And it's here that the bodies gather. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht. And you're listening to episode 135, The Canal. This episode is sponsored by the upcoming new release movie, May, December. As true crime content consumers, I'm sure you, like me, have occasionally sat and wondered Whatever happened to the people involved in that huge headline case from years before? Very often, those caught in the midst of a shocking and salacious case will move on with their lives and try to stay as far under the radar as possible. But the past rarely stays where you left it. When Gracie and Joe first met, their relationship became tabloid news and the subject of a shocking scandal Joe was barely a teenager, and Gracie, two decades his senior. Somehow the questionable coupling weathered the storms, and now, twenty years later, they seem to be living in domestic bliss. But all that changes when an actress comes to town with the sole purpose of dredging up every last secret. In preparation for a movie about the past, the woman's questions are going to uncover a raw wound that never really healed. Starring Julianne Moore, Natalie Portman and Charles Melton, May-December will remind you that often the most deeply buried truths are the ones we've hidden from ourselves. May-December has received multiple nominations and awards internationally and lands in cinemas nationwide in South Africa on the 1st of December. I am most certainly going to be watching this one, and I highly recommend you do too. A huge thank you to May December for supporting True Crime South Africa. Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means no big or even little corporates fund it. And that's just the way I like it. And it's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time-consuming. And for the most part, it remains a one-woman process. 
it's me. I'm the one woman. You? Yes, you. Are the reason this podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases. If you'd like to help keep the show running, please consider supporting our sponsors, signing up to Patreon or PayPal, follow the show on the socials, as the kids say, and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at True Crime South Africa forward slash donate. Shout out to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. A huge thank you goes out to Aileen, Candice, Darren Karikas, Angelique Boertis, and Christina Juta. Thank you so much, everyone. Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month, a shout-out on the pod, and other exclusive contents, including Q&As with me, as and when it's available. It's a minimum of $1 a month. I think you should do it. Please. And thank you. Keba. Research for this episode started as one case, but as I got into it, I realized there was an even bigger story that needed to be told around the circumstances of this crime and the area in which it happened. So that's what you'll hear about in this episode. It's a little different from the normal episodes I do, but I learned a lot in researching this, and I hope you'll find value in it too. Most importantly, the two victims from the crime I actually started out researching are exactly the types of victims this podcast was created for. What I sometimes refer to as invisible victims. People whose stories don't make it to the mainstream media, or if they do, are severely underreported. This case, for instance, did make it to some of the online publications, but it was before the victims were identified, and there was nothing more reported after that. In researching this episode, I used a lot of online resources related to history, as well as an episode of the television series Opsia Sispur, which really does always do a great job of also highlighting cases with less mainstream coverage. So, let's get into episode 135, The Canal. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. This episode centers around a few different geographical areas of importance, and I probably dove far deeper into the history of these areas than I needed to for the purposes of a true crime podcast, but I often find that you can't tell the full story unless you have some understanding of the history of the people and the socioeconomic circumstances of an area. And I think you'll agree by the end of this episode that it is important to understand the big picture before we focus in on the specifics here. So I'll start with the widest circle out, which in this case is the Northern Cape, as a province. In its current iteration, the Northern Cape was created as a province in 1994. 
It is the largest province in South Africa and also the most sparsely populated province in South Africa, with the 2022 census putting its population at about 1.3 million people, which equates to just 3.6 people per square kilometer. In comparison, Gauteng, which is the most densely populated province in the country, has 809.6 residents per square kilometer of land. One of the reasons for the low population levels in the province is its climate, which results in some pretty difficult living conditions in many places. The Northern Cape's climate is mostly arid to semi-arid, with few areas in the province receiving any more than 400 millimetres of rainfall per annum. Temperatures are also pretty extreme in the province, plunging to minus degrees in winter and rocketing to low 40 degrees Celsius in summer. The economic landscape in the province is also difficult, with very few jobs on offer in the more rural areas. And although the province has an average unemployment rate of 26%, when compared to other provinces which are significantly higher, it is clear that even those that are working are bringing in extremely low salaries. The most recent stats I could find indicate that more than half of the households in the Northern Cape live underneath the official poverty line. Now, the official poverty line in South Africa is when a household receives less than 624 rand per month in income. I was quite horrified at that number, to be honest, because even double that is most certainly still going to see a household living in poverty. 624 rand is not even enough to be food secure, never mind housing, education or anything else. So I feel like the true level of poverty is far higher than the stats indicate. So now that we have an idea of the bigger picture in a geographical sense, we now need to zoom in on one specific town in the Northern Cape, which is Uppington. The town that is known as Uppington today found its roots on an island-scattered section of the Khrip River, which was a gathering place for pirates. Yes, you heard that right. River pirates. In the 1870s, a Khoi Khoi chieftain, whose name has been recorded in history as Klaus Lucas, which was very likely not his real name, lived with some of his people in this area. The official story is that Klaus Lucas saw the need to move the river pirates out of the area and simultaneously also felt that his people would benefit from learning how to read and write. So he requested that a mission be set up in the area. I say the official story because also during this time there was essentially a genocide happening of all San and Khoikhoi people and if they were not being slaughtered, they were being run out of the area or forced into slavery. So it's very difficult to know how much of the official story is true and how much was just a desperate man trying to save his people and giving in to pressure from outside forces. Either way, a missionary called Reverend Christian was sent from Cape Town, and in 1873, Construction began on a Christian mission there. 
Despite the arid conditions in much of the province, what we now know as Uppington had the significant advantage of the Orange River, which provided an excellent supply of irrigation for various types of farming. In the years after the mission was set up, the river pirates were successfully removed from the area, and the people now moving into the area began to dig canals, which redirected water from the Orange River through additional areas and deeper into farmland so that it could be used by farmers there. One of these canals still exists today after being formalized and concreted over the years and is called the Uppington Canal. As the entire area developed more and more, communities sprung up around or near the canal, often because the canal was close to farms, where migrants and seasonal work was on offer. The communities around these areas, though, are incredibly poverty-stricken. You'll see desperately sad examples of this in the cases I discuss in this episode. The canal became a symbol of life in a dry and hot area, but it soon became a symbol of death and tragedy too. The kinds of deaths that the canal brought vary in type and cause, and of course, although we're dealing with a small sample of time here in this episode, it has undoubtedly been the site of many deaths, likely from the very day it was built. Uppington SAPS offer statistics from the period 2008 to 2018, just a decade, and they say that they've had 112 cases of either unnatural death or murder, which occurred in this canal during that time. Two of the police divers that have worked the area for many years, one man for 23 years, have a different view. Kurt Nell, who's worked in emergency response and as a police diver in the area for more than two decades, tells the producers of Opsia Sespoor that he's recovered between 25 and 30 bodies a year from the canal for the last 23 years. That is, at minimum, 575 people during his career. Many of the drownings that occur in the Uppington Canal are accidental. Alcohol is a big contributing factor. If there's one thing we've learned through some of the cases covered here on the podcast, it's that, sadly, substance misuse, including alcohol, is extremely prevalent in areas of intense poverty. There may not be a proper supermarket in a really poor area, but there will always be someone selling alcohol, and even giving it out on credit to really further cripple those already struggling. Very often residents will become intoxicated and fall into the canal and drown. In most sections of the canal, the current is extremely strong, and even an adult male will not be able to stand for very long without having his feet swept out from under him. Unfortunately, most people in the area also do not know how to swim. Learning to swim in a controlled and safe environment is very much a privilege that the vast majority of South Africans do not have access to, and considering access to basic education in these areas is a challenge in itself, with schools being so far away, 
swimming lessons are most certainly not top of the priority list. As a result, those falling into the canal, whether intoxicated or not, don't often have much of a chance at escaping. The sides of the canal are built to retain water, not to facilitate an escape. So even if a victim does manage to get to the side, holding on and getting out is incredibly challenging. Almost equally as often as intoxicated adults, the police divers pull drowned children out of the water. With the area being so hot in summer, and the children also having nothing of substance to keep them occupied, playing in the water is very tempting and often done unsupervised. There are spots in the canal where the current is slow enough to paddle around, but just one step in the wrong direction can lead to fatal consequences. It's also in these areas of weaker currents, the police divers say, that the bodies often collect. Depending on where a person is spotted going into the canal, Divers will not respond to that spot. They'll respond to the area they know is closest to there where the current is weakest, because often that's where they'll find the victim. There are also outlets from the canal to various farms in the area, making it easier for farmers to access water. Sometimes the smaller bodies, the children, will make their way into these tributaries, and farmers will find drowned children on their farms. The deaths in the canal have become such an issue in the area that the local water board, which consists of local residents and business people, grouped their own financial resources together and put fences up along as much of the canal as they could manage. Unfortunately, The local government made no contribution to this, and the fences regularly get cut, and the poles are stolen, which makes the project almost impossible to sustain. Police divers have tried going through the community to educate residents about the dangers of the canal and asking parents to ensure their children stay away from the water, but they say that very often the most common reaction is that the children have nothing else to do and no other way to occupy themselves, so they will continue to play in the canal. While accidental drownings in the canal are tragic enough, some of the deaths there are not accidental, and these ones are perhaps the most difficult to comprehend. On the 26th of January 2011, Cornelia Duplessis woke up and got dressed to go to work as she usually did. Her adult son, Ralph, was still living at home and unemployed, as were so many other people in the area, so he was still sleeping when she left that day. Cornelia says that she and her son had a very close relationship. They spoke about almost everything, and the things that he didn't want to share with her, he shared with his aunt, Marianne. Cornelia's younger sister. It was this openness in their family and the tenaciousness she thought they all had to weather even the most difficult things in life together that would have Cornelia questioning the horror that unfolded that day. 
It would later emerge that Ralph had woken up that morning, gotten dressed and gone to his girlfriend's house, not far from his mom's. He and his girlfriend had a four-year-old daughter together called Raylene. Raylene lived with her mom and grandparents, but Ralph saw the girl every day. Cornelia says that from the day Raylene was born, she'd become everything to her son, and he doted on her almost to the point of spoiling her. Although Ralph's girlfriend's side of the story has never been heard, Cornelia says that she believes there were no issues in her son's relationship with his daughter's mom. She said that they seemed happy together, and she was sure that one day they would get married and all live together when finances allowed. Ralph Duplessis, though, clearly had a different plan. On arrival at his girlfriend's house that day, Ralph collected Raylene and left. His girlfriend was working, and the child's grandparents, of course, had absolutely no issue with Ralph taking the child out. They would come to regret this decision. Cornelia was at work when her sister Marianne phoned. The woman initially refused to say why, but insisted that Cornelia needed to come home immediately. Not wanting to take unnecessary time off, Cornelia pushed her for an explanation, and her sister eventually broke down and blurted out that she thought Ralph was dead, and Raylene might be too. In a daze, Cornelia made her way home. There she was told that a neighbour had witnessed Ralph jumping into the canal that morning, and he'd had four-year-old Raylene in his arms when he did. At first, Cornelia was sure it had been an accident. There was absolutely no hint that her son had been suicidal, and she thought perhaps he'd just taken Raylene to the canal to play, and perhaps she'd fallen in and he'd gone in after her. But when she discovered where Ralph had been seen going in, a niggling feeling of doubt started to eat at her. There's a spot on the canal that the locals call Siphon's Mouth. It is a point at which a large pipe in the canal takes the water underground for a few kilometres. The mouth of the pipe is at water level and large enough to fit a person inside. Water bubbles over the opening of the pipe like a waterfall, and although one can't clearly see the entrance, the water tells you it's there. This area is avoided by everyone who lives in the community, even those who feel invincible enough to swim in the canal, because it is so dangerous. Getting sucked into the siphon's mouth means a certain death. As soon as you enter the pipe, you'll be underground and underwater for a long time. Far too long to survive. For those who fear the danger... It's a no-go zone. For those with suicidal and homicidal intentions, though, it's exactly where they want to be. And that is where Ralph Duplessis was seen entering the canal that day. By the time Cornelia got down to the canal, police divers had already retrieved her son's body. Her grandchild, Raylene, was recovered the next day by a farmer. Her body had washed out onto his land. 
A police investigation would confirm what Cornelia did not want to believe. Multiple witnesses gave the same account. Ralph had most definitely, purposefully, jumped into the canal that day while holding his daughter. He had taken his own life and murdered his daughter. Thankfully, cases like this were rare in the area. Suicides were not uncommon in the canal. Those caught in the grasps of depression and other mental illness with no resources to seek help often saw Siphon's mouth as the solution to their problems. But most did not take anyone else with them. As the community came to terms with the horrific nature of Ralph and Raylene's deaths, they tried to understand how they could stop such a thing from happening again, and there were calls for people to seek assistance for mental health issues, for people to act if they saw suspicious activity around the canal. But as such things often do, the push for change started to fade into the background overtaken by the drudgery and difficulty of daily life, by the basic need for survival. The pain faded just a little, and the shock wore off, and the community pasted over that terrible incident in 2011 with the self-assurance that it was a one-off, a black swan event. But it wasn't. Barosa Basson fell deeply in love with Nando's Ramatsehe almost the first moment she saw him. She tells the producers of Opsia Suspur that there was nothing about Nando's that worried her in the beginning. He was pretty much the perfect partner at first. He was a hard worker, and as a couple they lived the often migrant life of farm workers, going from farm to farm, doing the work that needed to be done. They hardly ever stayed on one farm for very long, but she describes those early years as happy, and although they were often struggling for money, they were content in one another's company. Nando's temper did start to show itself when he drank, though. Luckily, she says, they hardly ever had money for alcohol, so at first it wasn't a major issue. In 2011, though, when she gave birth to their first child, Lebochang, Nando's began to change. Verosa talks in a rapid-fire local dialect of Afrikaans that is sometimes difficult to follow. At first I think that's probably just the way she talks, but I soon realise she's just trying to get it all out. The story she's about to tell is so horrific, and it scarred her so deeply that if she stops, takes a breath, does not fill every moment with ten, twenty words, then something disastrous will happen, perhaps. Her rapid conversation comes from the mind of someone who's lived through something none of us could probably ever imagine, and many of us don't want to. Barosa says that after Lebochang was born, Nandos began to, quote, fight with her. She says it in such a way that, at first, it's not actually clear that she's talking about physical abuse and assault. 
She's very clearly a strong woman, physically and mentally. That strength has likely been born from a lifetime of living in poverty and struggling to survive. She's also clearly been raised in an environment where patriarchal values run deep. And as a result, she describes Nando's physical abuse of her in a way that almost makes it sound like it's a small disagreement or even something she may have asked for or engaged in. It was neither, of course. What Verosa endured was sustained emotional and physical abuse, punctuated by periods of blissful peace. In one of those periods of peace, she gave birth to their second daughter, Orifiwe. The child was just two weeks old, though, when Nando's abuse started up again, and Verosa tricked him into leaving her and the girls alone. While he was gone, she packed up as much as she could carry and set off on foot into the blistering landscape. She would occasionally stop to breastfeed her baby, but for the most part, she just kept moving, certain that Nando's would be hot on her trail. That day, Verosa fled to her mother's home. For a few weeks, she and her daughters lived in peace, although she secretly feared that Nando's would come after her. And he did. She was working on a nearby farm one day when her sister came to tell her that Nando's was at the house. Verosa was terrified of what he might do to her, but says he seemed like a different man. Nando's, of course, understood that he wouldn't draw Verosa back in with violence this time. He had to love-bomb her back into trusting him, and that's what he did. Verosa and Nando's relationship continued on for another two years, until in 2018, Something happened that was the breaking point for Verosa and almost the end of her life. Nando's behavior had consistently deteriorated over the two years since Verosa had fled for her life with her daughters. His violence had spread to people outside of the home and he'd been arrested and charged with assault with the intent to do grievous bodily harm after he attacked a man with a machete during a drunken brawl. Then one day, soon after he was given bail on that charge, he and Verosa were having a meal with friends and had just returned home when Nando suddenly turned violent. Verosa was carrying Orifiwe, who was a toddler at the time, on her back, and she was sleeping, and Nando's ripped the child off her back, carried her a few meters away, and placed her on the ground. He then returned to Verosa, who was frozen in fear, and pulled a Hemsbach horn from the waistband of his pants. Using the implements, he beat Verosa until she was unconscious. He broke her arm and her leg, and she sustained life-threatening head injuries. Thankfully, a neighbor heard Verosa's screams and intervened. She was rushed to hospital for treatment and spent six weeks recovering in hospital. Nando's was arrested and charged with attempted murder. 
Despite the fact that he had another pending case against him, he was again released on bail to await trial. By 2019, though, neither trial had materialised. And although a captain from Uppington Police had given Barosa his cell phone number and told her to have someone phone him if Nando's gave her any trouble, the woman didn't have her own cell phone. So she would have to rely on a neighbour, but she also moved regularly within the area for work, so she never really had any lasting relationships with her neighbours, where she felt comfortable sharing with them about her abusive husband. For the most part, after Verosa was discharged from hospital, Nando's kept his distance. He would occasionally appear to spend time with the children, and Verosa never stopped him from doing so. She wanted her girls to have a relationship with their father, even though their own relationship was certainly over. As I mentioned earlier, access to education in the area for children living rurally is difficult. By 2019, Lebo was eight years old and Orifiwe was four. Neither girl had received any form of schooling, but Verosa knew that she was going to have to make a plan, especially for Lebo who was now of school-going age. For most children in these situations, going to school also means leaving your parents and having to live with either extended family or complete strangers who agree to take you in. Verosa was dreading letting her girls go, and they were both very attached to her. Nando's had mentioned that one of his employers was helping workers to register their children in one of the closest schools, and make arrangements for housing them too. And so, when he arrived at her house on the 6th of December 2019, and told her that he needed to take the girls to register them, Verosa was not entirely surprised. The girls, though, were not happy to hear that they had to go somewhere with their father and their mother would not be going along. They both began to cry and begged their mother not to make them go. Nando's became annoyed, but Verosa began to think twice and told Nando's, that maybe he should just do it another time. The girls were upset, and she didn't want to force them to go with him. Nando's, though, was hearing none of it, and he shushed the girls and told Verosa not to worry. He'd be back with them by sundown. The woman sobs as she recalls the moment Nando's walked away with her daughters. For hours... Verosa calmed herself with the thought that they would be back soon, and everything would be fine. She had, after all, never worried about the safety of her girls around Nando's. For all the violence he'd meted out on her and others, he'd never laid a hand on their girls, she said, not even to discipline them. She'd honestly never believed that they were at risk with him. But as the sun started to sink down behind the horizon... The chill that ran down the mother's spine was not from the cool evening farm air. Verosa Basson did not sleep that night. She stayed awake, hoping to hear the voices of her children outside her door or their footsteps on the porch. 
but there was not a sound. And by the time the sun rose the next morning, Vera's stomach was in knots. She was dressing and getting ready to start walking to look for her girls, where she didn't know, but anything was better than sitting in her house waiting interminably when there was a knock at her door. Verosa opened to find her neighbour ashen-faced and delivering a disturbing piece of news. Someone had just called him to let him know that a child's body had washed out of the canal and the person thought the child looked like one of her daughters. Verosa immediately gave the neighbour the cell phone number for the police captain and he dialed. She explained to the officer what had happened the day before and that she'd just been told a child's body had been found in the canal. Hesitantly, the captain confirmed that a body had been found and asked what her daughters were wearing when they went missing. Verosa relayed that Lebochang had been wearing jeans, orange panties and a white t-shirt, and Orifiwe had been wearing pink tights, a white shirt and yellow underwear. The captain asked Verosa to stay where she was and he would confirm with his officers on scene and get back to her. Verosa expected her neighbour's cell phone to ring any minute with the captain on the other end telling her that although someone's child had been lost to the canal, it was not her child. But the minutes ticked by and the cell phone remained quiet. Then a low rumble of a car could be heard down the dirt road. As Verosa squinted against the sun and billowing red sand, she saw the SAPS decals on the side of the vehicle and dropped to her knees. Police did not just find one child's body that day, they found two. One was confirmed to be Lebochang Basson, and the other was Orifiwe Basson. The captain had come to deliver the news to Verosa personally, and she would make formal identifications of their bodies at the mortuary later that day. Although an arrest warrant was immediately put out for Nando's Ramatehe, police already knew where he was. Witnesses came forward to say that they'd seen the man walking with his daughters near the canal. The sighting had been fleeting. The three were there, and then they were gone. But no one watching had suspected they'd gone into the canal. The spot at which they were seen was Siphon's mouth. Uppington police knew what that meant. Taking into account Nando's history of domestic violence, his upcoming trials, and general violence behaviour, they had no doubt that he'd taken his own life and murdered his two daughters. Nando's body was recovered the following day in a pond on a farm where it had come to rest. When Verosa speaks to, to the Opsias Spur team, it's just over a year since she lost her children. She clearly feels guilty for having let Nando's take her daughters, and I can only hope that one day she will be able to release that guilt, because it doesn't belong to her. Cornelia Duplessis 
didn't believe that her son would ever take his own life, much less that of his daughter, Raylene. Verosa knew very well that her husband was capable of violence, but had never considered he would take his own life or ever harm their children. Neither woman is responsible for what happened, and I don't know if either could have done anything to stop what did. But ultimately, they are the ones that are left behind to deal with the fallout. It's sadly not uncommon for domestic violence to escalate to family murder. Occasionally, the perpetrator will try to kill their partner at the same time, but far too often, they seem to plan their deeds to cause maximum damage. If I kill them and myself, and not you, your suffering continues after I am dead. This, perhaps, is the ultimate act of control by an abusive partner. Now, Verosa Basson's life is forever in the shadow of Nando's Ramatsehe. She can never leave him behind, because she cannot leave the memory of her children behind. One of the most heartbreaking things I found when researching this case was that Verosa does not have a single picture of her daughters. This, of course, speaks to the deep poverty she and her children lived in and their migrant lifestyle to follow work. Not a single picture exists of her children except the ones stuck in her mind. And this just adds an extra level of heartbreak because Verosa cannot try to eventually push the image of seeing her babies in a mortuary out of her mind by replacing those images bit by bit with pictures of them when they were alive, happy, smiling, laughing. She has to do that somehow with the mental pictures she has, if at all possible. The Uppington Canal continues to claim lives to this day. In September this year, an unidentified male was found in the canal. Many more were recovered before him. Some were identified, and many weren't. For the police divers who were called to recover these victims, a small solace lies in knowing that they're at least able to give back the bodies of the deceased to their families for burial and that this may provide some amount of closure. Many of the families of the people who've chosen to take their own lives in the canal prefer to believe their drownings were accidental. Perhaps the pain of wondering whether they missed something that might have changed the outcome is too much to bear. Calls continue for the Uppington Canal to be fenced off, for local children to be given a swimming pool with a lifeguard and swimming lessons. But all of these solutions, although I'm sure they would be helpful to some extent, don't really put the focus where it needs to be, on the people. These solutions make the canal the perpetrator, a necessary but dangerous presence. But it's not the canal that's killing people, really. 
It's all the underlying issues that lead them to the canal. It's the poverty. Children wandering aimlessly around, forgotten by the authorities who pledged to serve them and their parents. It's the substance abuse. It's the mental health challenges and the lack of resources. And it's the domestic violence that goes unpunished. Those are the things killing people. And the Uppington Canal, well, really, that's just the means. Raylene Duplessis, Lebohang Basson, Orefiwe Basson. Rest gently. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then. Thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. A healthier, happier, more productive life starts with good sleep. Make sure you invest in the right bed. Dial-A-Bed stocks the best bed brands at the best prices. Shop at 76 stores nationwide or online.